At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. They'd exit to the back. Several, several years ago, even though I had been professionally diagnosed with a construction disability, I decided to take on a household project. My wife had been the professional who had diagnosed my disability for construction work. And I thought, honey, it's just a fence. I'm just putting up one side. You come out of our backyard, just felt like you were in the neighbor's yard to our left. So I'm just going to put up nine posts in a nice straight line. They'd already made the fence. You just had to take the, the five foot panel and just put it up on the post. That's all there was to it. Very simple project, right? And so I put in the nine posts and then I take the first five foot section and I sort of lift it up onto the post and I nail in a side and then I nail in the next side and I stand back and I'm just awed. I feel like calling my neighbors just to sit there and admire the handiwork that I've been doing. And I had to measure it to make sure it was just right. You know, you drop a plumb line down to make sure you're going to stay on the line. You don't want a fence that looks like this. And I got to the end and I did this little measurement and I realized I was only a quarter of an inch off. And I was doing a victory dance in my backyard thinking this is miraculous. A miracle has occurred. I'm only a a quarter of an inch off. So as I'm dancing around, I get the next uh, five foot section and I put it up. Well, I noticed, you know, on this end, I'm just a little off. So I adjust it. That's fine. And I just feel like, well, this ends a little bit further off. Well, I nail it up and I nail it up and this end is four inches off now. I'm thinking four inches now, a bush, some shrubs. I mean, you know, you can hide four inches easily. But before I put on the third panel, I just tried to calculate. Well, I mean, if I've gone from a quarter of an inch to four, what am I going to do from four to the next end? And I didn't have to calculate very far before I realized, you know, by the time I got my eighth panel on, my fence was going to be like 30 feet in the air. And I definitely could not hide that from my neighbors. And what that taught me was something that I already know and that, you know, intuitively, when you're building something, you got to get the first one right. That's not a guarantee that you're going to get the second one just right. But if you don't have the first one right, even if you're off by just a little bit, by the time you begin to add things to it, the the distance between where you wanted to be and where you set out to be and where you ended up just begins to expand further and further away. Well, that was my opening illustration four years ago when we started Christ Community Church and we had Founders Day. That it was my hope, it was the hope of the founders of the church to just try to work really hard on getting that first panel in. To say, we want to, we want to get our foundation right because as the years go on, we're going to be adding things to that first block. And if we don't have that first block set in just right, it won't be many years before we find out what we hope to happen and what is happening begin to expand out exponentially. And we don't want that to happen at Christ Community Church. So on Founders Day, I've had the uh, habit of just giving this sermon again. Uh, Not because you're not good listeners. Many of you could repeat it back to me. 
But apparently from Joshua chapter four, it's helpful to have little markers in your life that you can go back and visit and say, "Okay, I'm remembering now what God had done. Remember, Joshua has the people come across the River Jordan. Then 12 of them have to go, the leader of each tribe, and go get a stone and bring it out on the west side of the bank of the Jordan River. And they build a little uh, uh, altar there. And Joshua says, we need to build this so you remember what God has done. And then when your children come back and they don't remember what happened, then you can say, well, this is what happened. And so for Christ Community Church... In the beginning, we set out these pillars, I felt like, and this doesn't encompass everything that we wanted to do, but I felt like these were the beginnings of a foundation. And if we could keep this foundation straight, if we could constantly revisit it, remind ourselves why we're here, what we're called to do, then we wouldn't get too far off. So it's helpful to remind ourselves uh, every 12 months or so when we get together. The three things that I talked about Four years ago was God's chosen leadership. We'll see that out of Joshua. God's word and then having courage. So the three things I wanted to impress upon us then and I I want to impress upon us again now is God's chosen leadership. God's word. And then courage. First, God's chosen leadership. You know, God is not limited to how he might work and he can do whatever he wants to. And he works in more than one way. But typically the biblical pattern and not only the biblical pattern, but the historic, the historical pattern is that God regularly chooses or begins with godly leadership. You can think about Abraham or Moses. You can think about Joshua here. You can look in the New Testament and think about John the Baptist or Peter or Paul or Timothy. You can look in church history and you can think about Augustine or Calvin or Wesley. In a talk that Robbie Zacharias was giving on leadership, he was actually quoting someone else and he said this. There are no bona fide mass movements. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. At the center of the column is a man or woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There is no abstract movement that is moving ahead. There are individuals who are moving ahead and therefore the cause of Christ is going forward. Now, I want us to look at these characteristics of God's leadership And I think it's important for us to remember this in two different ways. Number one, it's your shared responsibility as a member of Christ Community Church to ensure that we get somebody that's going to preach behind this pulpit the word of God. That's your responsibility. That's our responsibility. We're all trying to make that happen. We want the right person coming up in front of us and teaching us about what God has to say. The second thing is that we have a shared responsibility in being leaders out into the world. We're supposed to be light in a dark place. First, Peter says this. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
So the body of Christ is a unique physical representation or manifestation of Christ on the earth. And so we as believers want to take a look at our leader. But we also want to take a look at ourselves. Are we operating in the way that God would be pleased? And the two characteristics I want to talk about, the first one is an intimate relationship with God. You see, in Joshua chapter one, verse one, the Lord spoke to Joshua. One of the leader's primary concerns is listening and leading from God's word. We talked about this a lot last week. If you remember when Jesus, remember Jesus is sending his disciples out onto the lake and he's staying behind and dismissing the crowd of 5,000 that he's just fed. And then what does he do? He goes up on a mountainside to pray. He dismisses the disciples. He dismisses the crowd and he goes up and he dismisses himself just to listen to God Almighty. And so we as believers Particularly the leader has to dismiss the crowd, has to dismiss the disciples and say, I'm going to go and get my life oriented around or get in the right orbit around God. So that when we enter into the culture, we're thinking right. We've got the right foundation. We're not a quarter of an inch off or half a foot off. And then we go out into the culture and then we get way, way away from where we want to be. The the leader's responsibility is to listen to God. That's his primary responsibility. A, A great biblical example is in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy is just repeating most of what has already been said in the first four books of the Bible. And Moses is repeating back some things. And he gets to a very important passage. It's Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. And he's talking about... When you have a king over you. And here's what the king should do. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, this is Canaan. They're crossing over Jordan into Canaan and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over set a king over me like all the other nations around me have. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose one from among your brothers who shall set a king be who you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Just Here's here are the responsibilities of the king. And just from your knowledge of Saul and David and Solomon, we don't want a king who's trying to get worldly power. We're not trying to get a king who's satisfying themselves with many wives. He shall not acquire for himself for himself excessive silver and gold. And listen to this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. See, he's living underneath the law and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law that these statutes have in them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers 
and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left. You heard that in Joshua one so that he may continue long in his kingdom and he and his children. So we have to have a leader who separates himself out, who who's listening, whose primary relationship is to listen to God and to follow after what God wants. The challenge of that is when the people want to go a different direction. You see, there's a lot of places that Moses and Joshua and Jesus are leading the people that they just don't want to go. And if you're standing right up here, you're going to have to lead some people in a direction they don't want to go. And we have to have somebody who's willing to do that and say, I'm driving you in a direction. I'm pulling you in a direction. I'm pushing you in a direction. I'm encouraging you in the direction of the way the Lord wants to go. And the only way that person's going to know it is if they spend time with the Lord and understand his word. Second observation, I think, by the way, on that observation in terms of our leadership structure, I don't want to put myself in a unique box. We're really led by a group called the elders, and I'm just one of those people. I think after four years, as we try to assess the situation a little bit today, I think you would generally be pleased. I'm not suggesting that we're perfect as leaders, but I think you generally would be pleased. I'll I'll never forget when I had finished the sermon, a guy that I had just gotten to know was always coming. He was sitting maybe five or six seats up on the aisle every time. And uh, he came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, Paul, that sounds good. Let's see if you can keep it. And that was Kenny Smith, who's now an elder. So we're looking now to ask ourselves, Kenny, are we keeping it? Not are you keeping it? Are we keeping what we feel like God has brought us to do? And so I would say in that area, that's a strength for us at this particular point, And I pray would continue to be the second characteristic is that the servant, the, the leader must be a servant. That's the whole thing, really, of the Bible. But in Mark 1045, which is the sort of the core of the book of Mark, Jesus says, I have come to serve to serve, not be served. And so the leader has to be a servant. The word leader in the New Testament is used less than ten times. The word servant in the New Testament is used over 1,000 times. And so that's the objective here. And remember, remember when Paul is having to write back to the, lead, the leadership at Corinth? And right out of the gate, this is what he says to this group. He says, some of you are following Paul, some of you are following Apollos, some of you are following Peter. They immediately see what Peter was trying to do in Matthew chapter 16. What Peter was doing in Matthew chapter 16 was he was establishing what every church is built on. Every church is built on the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing extra to that. And in this first generation in Corinth, what happened? Well, yeah, 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 we like Jesus, but we're following Paul. We're following Peter. We're following Apollos. They immediately begin to associate themselves around somebody else other than Christ. And that's so easy for us to do. 
You fall into the, the idea that, well, he's pretty much got all the answers. Or if you just read that book, then that's sort of the way. And we all have this tendency to have sort of Christian heroes and Christian superstars. I have that myself. And it's so easy to become, let them be the orbit. And we're trying to say, no, the orbit is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, let, let men regard us, Paul, Apollos, Peter, in this manner, as servants of Christ. If you're looking at those people, what I want you to see is they're a servant. And that word in the New Testament means a rower, an oarsman, somebody who, if you think about these big ships and these paddles are coming out from the bottom, you don't see that person. All you see is that they're moving the ship in the direction that the person who's got the tiller wants the ship to go. And so all the people, all the leaders, the strongest leaders find themselves at the very bottom of the ship, not seen and just rowing in the direction and saying, wherever God wants us to go, that's the way I want it to go. The Christian leader is an oarsman or in first Corinthians, Paul says a steward. Think of a steward on a ship as somebody who just delivers stuff from the dock into the ship. They're just the delivery system. And that's what we are as leaders. We're simply the delivery system. I went to a conference and a guy was talking about this in terms of delivering the word of God to the people of God. And he said, you remember when you used to sit down and write a letter? Now, most of you think of it as email, but let's pretend that we could think back long enough that you actually hand write a letter. You would fold it up and probably some of you like me, you would. You wouldn't have a hard time writing the letter. It was just getting it into the mailbox. Somehow you just couldn't get it off your desk and into the mailbox. But what if the mailman did this? He picked up your letter. He opened it up. He sort of edited out some things he didn't think were too good about your letter and added some things and folded back up and sent it off. Well, you wouldn't like that. And God doesn't like that. If somebody's standing up before the people of God, he doesn't have the opportunity or the responsibility to edit out the parts that God doesn't like or to add in some things that he thinks, well, God surely would want the people to know this. His responsibility is to just to be a steward. I'm just delivering what God has put down and I'm putting it in your lap. That's the kind of leadership that we want to have at Christ Community Church. Ravi Zacharias, in the same speech, talks about John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist denomination. And he said this about Wesley. He was a man who was 5'2", and he preached over 40,000 sermons. He wrote over 600 pieces of literature and edited many of his brothers' 8,000 hymns. At 83, he was angry at his doctor because he wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times a week. At 86 years old, he wrote in his journal, laziness is slowly creeping in. There's an, attendance, there's an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. There's a statue of Wesley in London. And the quote underneath the statue of this man says, Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't. Give God the glory. See, that's... That's what we're looking for. 
We're not looking for somebody who wants praise as the instrument. We want this person to be a steward and just bring that praise back to God. One of the reasons I say this, and I guess when I was writing some of this again, I was thinking, this sounds like Paul's sort of farewell speech. And gosh, I hope he's not leaving. And I'm not planning on leaving, but most of us are going to be alive when I do leave. Not to glory, I'm just saying retirement, right? And so we're all going to have to say one day, what kind of person do we want up here? And I'm helping you now say, we need this kind of person. We need somebody who's a leader. The leader's going to have to be in touch with the Word of God, and the leader's going to have to be a servant. Second thing that I wanted to note was God's Word. If you're building a fence, you drop down what's called a plumb line, a straight line. And then when you put your fence up against it, then you can look at the plumb line and say, I know the plumb line is straight. Now, am I straight according to it? And our plumb line is the scripture, the word canon. Sometimes you think of the canon of scripture, the Old and New Testament. That means measuring stick or straight rod. And so what we do is we hold up the word of God. We make no assumptions about our straightness. We press the word of God into us and say, we want to look like the word of God. It's our measuring stick. It's our canon. And there's two exhortations here to Joshua that I think are helpful for us to see. One, there's this verbal exhortation and then there's this visible exhortation. First of all, the verbal exhortation, Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Notice just the repetition in these verses. Let's start with verse six. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. That you may have good success Wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on on it day and night, being careful to do everything that is written in it. So we're understanding the word of God. We're trying to keep a straight line on the word of God. And I want you to hear now from the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet who saw the end of the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's reflecting back and he's telling the people, this is how we missed it. And I just don't want anybody to ever stand up in front of Christ Community Church and say these kinds of words. That you had it, but you've missed it now after a generation or a hundred years. And this is what Jeremiah says to the people in Israel. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. They speak visions from their own minds. They do not from the mouth of the Lord. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. Let the prophet tell his dream. But let the one who has spoken my word faithfully speak it. For what has straw to do with grain? When you tell these people about the day of disaster and they ask, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? Then say to them, you forsook me and did not keep my law. 
A horrible and shocking thing has happened in Israel. People stand up on their own authority and say what they want to say. That's not very far from the country that we live in. And we have to be very careful that when the person is up here, they're speaking from and out of the word of God. He's just a delivery system. And you can't love it another way. The visual illustration. Joshua, chapter three, verse two through four. Joshua is saying, here's the plan. There's the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The word of the Lord, the tablets containing the old and I mean, the the, uh, Ten Commandments. And so we have the word of the Lord. It's also sort of the position or place of the Lord. And the word is going to go forward by 2000 cubits or about a thousand yards or three football fields. We want to keep a good distance and they're going to step into the river. The river's going to stop and you're going to go past and then up on the other side. And so that we have this visual illustration, we not only have the verbal encouragement by the Lord, but he says, I want you to know that the word always has to be out front. And there's at least two reasons for that. Number one, they don't know where they're going. They've never been this way before. So we've got to follow somebody. And one of the reasons we have to have some distance between the leaders and the Lord is we don't want to get confused on who we're following. You and you don't want to just be following Paul Phillips. You don't just want to be following a group of elders. You don't want to follow just who's up here on the pulpit. I'm not saying there's not a heavy responsibility for that person to lead, but ultimately we have to have some distance and understand there's some difference between what the word says and how I follow it and how I would follow any other human being. We don't want to set our church up around a group of founders. We don't want to set up our church around a person in church history. We want to set our church up around the person and the word of God, and that's going to be our foundation. So we have that verbal illustration to not go to the right or to the left. And then we have this visual illustration, and that is to stay out front. Finally. God's call to the church, which I said was courage. Apparently, this is going to be a challenge for Joshua. Did you pick up on that? I mean, how many times does God say, be strong and courageous? And then the next line, be strong and very courageous. And then two lines, did I not tell you be strong and courageous? I mean, apparently, even though Joshua has seen what has happened, there's going to be some battles out front that he's going to have to remember. I've got to be strong and courageous. And so we look at Matthew chapter 16, and there's a lot here, and I just want to pick up on one thing. Jesus is taking his disciples on a field trip. We'll actually get to this in a couple more chapters when we go through Mark. And he takes his people up to a northern city in Israel, up above the Sea of Galilee, going north. And the place is called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is a place where there's a great deal of idol worship. Water comes from a spring that eventually feeds into the Sea of Galilee, that feeds into the Jordan River. And where this spring occurs, 
all the people who were sort of nature lovers believed that life sort of came out of this area. It was like a gate to the underworld. And this is where real life came. And a lot of times people would come and kill their children there. They would offer some other kind of sacrifice there, saying, this is sort of God. This is where life is coming from. And Jesus purposefully goes to Caesarea Philippi. He stands on a stage with all the other idols of the world. And he asks this question to his closest friends. Who do you say that I am? Am I just another one of these idols? Or... Or is there something about me that stands out? Do you see it? And Peter sees it. He sees it only by God's grace. You are the Christ. You're the one. You're the one that's here that we've been talking about, that we've been waiting for. You're the son of God. And then Jesus says, Peter, on this rock, not this person, not the pope, but this statement That Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the rock in which every church should be built on. On that statement that Jesus Christ is Lord, I'm going to build my church. And where is he going to build his church? At the gates of hell. You see, he's come to that gateway. Everybody knew this was a gateway to the underworld. And he comes to that place and he says, when you get it right, when you understand that I am the Christ, I want you to understand that Christ has come to stand at this gate and blow it away. Not, once you understand that, then huddle all of yourselves away and just try to be Christians best you can and hope you can keep your head down and don't get taken out. That's not what he's talking about. Please, go beat against the gates of hell. And if you go with the person of Christ, if you go with the strength of the word of Christ, Christ says those gates will not hold. It's just such a tendency to huddle up, to, to not to get away from the culture. And I understand there's need for separation. But at some point, somebody's going to go beat on the gates of hell. Look, I and you were on the other side of that gate. And somebody came and beat that gate down and grabbed me and said, Paul, this is the way. And so you and I and us as a church, we have to go. There are people on the other side of the gate dying to know the way. And it's our responsibility to go and do that. And it's going to take a great deal of courage. I would say from my vantage point in the first of these, trying to have the right leadership, trying to have a leadership that's servant oriented, trying to have a leadership that keeps a good distance away from the Lord, the word, meaning that we understand we're following it. We're not following personalities or people that we're doing a good job. I mean, we're we're working hard at that part that we're keeping the word at the foundation where when we have a question, we go back to the word. We try to let everything come out of the word for our direction. I would say we're doing a good job there. I mean, place to improve, but we're keeping that in the right perspective. I would say courage. Individually, people have shown remarkable courage. 
But as a church, I'm not sure we're there yet. I think we have a tremendous amount of opportunity and potential before us to go out into this city, Wilmington, as a body. Now, I know some people individually are doing it well. I'm talking as a body and go and say we want to be Christ in dark places as a body. It's a lot easier to go as a group than it is by yourself. And it's a responsibility for the church to plan itself there, not just individuals. And so I'm going to ask this. I'm going to spend some time reflecting on that idea by reading a book and then drawing some conclusions from that book. And I'm looking for two or three, maybe four people who'd want to read that book with me this summer. Have a meeting, probably in late August, early September. And then just say, let's try to pick a place in the community that is a church we can go and have an impact. I don't want anybody to come up after the service and say, well, I want to be, I don't want to do that. I don't want anybody at Founders Day say, oh, I want to do that. I want you to think about it. Because I'm going to, first thing I'm going to say, be strong and courageous. You see, it sounds like a neat thing and then you go, oh, well, I, you know, I didn't realize it was going to cost that. So I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it and then you can call me at the office later in the week and say, I, I, I'd be willing to be one of those people. And look, I'm not talking about putting our name on a marquee. I'm talking about being an oarsman, somebody underneath that's going to serve in difficult places. And we'll just let God direct us in that way. The reason we're here is because of Christ. I mean, the reason we're breathing is because of Christ. And we're whole people, those who are here as believers. The reason we would say we're whole, we're a new creation. Our wholeness came from Christ's brokenness. Him being torn gave us the opportunity to take all of our torn little shreds of life and Him to put it back together. If we really want to go serve Christ, one of the things that's going to cost us is getting torn. And so when we come up to take communion, I want us to remember what Christ has done. He's been torn. He's been broken for our wholeness. And I want, to rem- I want us to remember to be people of courage. We will have to be torn and broken to bring wholeness to people who live on the other side of the gates of hell. He was helping his disciples, and now we understand the cost. Probably his disciples did not. He said, this is a new covenant. And that covenant costs something. It's made in my blood. Take and drink. This is my body. It's been torn so that you might have wholeness. Come, be whole, take and eat. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward. And when you come forward, you think about 
and consider what Christ has done, what he's calling you to do and calling you to be. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need pictures. We need rocks. We need to hear the same message over and over and over again. We need uh, the elements, baptism, communion. To, to put us in the right orbit around the person of Christ. And I pray for these people, Lord. These people are your church. It's not a building. It's these people. The church comes forward today. The church takes of the body of Christ, the foundation, the stone on which we can all stand. The church is called to stand at the gates of hell. So I pray, Lord, that we would understand what you've called us to. We would understand and hear clearly, be strong and courageous. And know that you will be with us until the very end. Be with us now. 